Magenetuk. That means hello, my relatives. Benesi Kwe Nijinikaz, Makwendo Dam, Gaubabani Kog, Ishkani Ginan, Ndunjaba. I'm from the White Earth Reservation, which you gathered in northern Minnesota, which is kind of between Bemidji and Fargo, if you're not from around here. And I'm um, grateful to be here to talk with you today. Um, quite a storm last night. This is your challenge, you know, building resilient housing and cities and villages in a time of climate catastrophe and climate change. You know, and uh, it is an epic time that we are all living in. This is a time in, in our uh, prophecies, it's called the time of the seventh fire, where we're told as Anishinaabe people, long time ago by our prophets, that we would have to make a choice between two paths. One path, they said, would be well-worn but scorched. The other path, they said, would be green. It would be our choice upon which path to embark. I really think that that's not just for Anishinaabe people. I think that's for all of us. We have this moment in time, you know, uh, we have catastrophes of biblical proportions which surround us. We have a pandemic which surrounds us. Um, you know, you guys are all still masked. I live out in the brush and I was like, oh my God, it's back down here. You know, so these are the times we were born into. And the question is how we take up the challenge to do the right thing in this moment in time. I think a lot about uh, our prophecies because I'm an older woman and I hung out with a lot of cool old elders, you know, and I remember them talking about things at the time that I didn't think. And in, indi in indigenous thinking, you know, there's a lot of discussion about um, um, a cyclical worldview. And I know some of you have heard that maybe. But the, but the point is, is that uh, land-based thinking is, is, is based on the earth and a set of understandings and principles uh, that include the understanding that the Creator's law is the highest law, higher than the laws made by nation, states, or municipalities. You would do well to uh, follow the Creator's law. And I think about that because last night I was driving down and then I got over, you know, and I was in town and I was like, I don't think you want to pick a fight with Mother Nature. You know what I'm saying? It's like in the end, no matter how many laws you pass and how many new regulations you pass, if you can't abide by the laws of Mother Nature, you're not going to do well. You know, and that's kind of this moment in time and the opportunity to figure out how to transform a society to one which is based less on conquest and more on survival. Those old prophets talked about a lot of things. I remember that the Hopis used to talk about this time when a new world would come. Because that's our teaching. It's not an Armageddon teaching. You know, I'm not a Christian. And in our teachings, we understand that there is a, a it, as the creator's world is, as Mother Earth, that there's a birth, there's a life, there's a death, and there's a rebirth. And that's this time now, this is spring, when life is reborn, when we have this new opportunity to put seeds in the ground, to have prayers and hopes and make something new for the year. You know, and that's what I was doing yesterday. I was planting potatoes in a field. Then I cleaned up and came to see you. You know, but my point is, is that, that that is the way of life that is around us. And those old dudes, one time, this one guy said, this, uh, Thomas Banyaka, a Hopi, a Hopi teacher, he said, there's going to be a new world when there's a web in the sky. And he said that in the 70s, and we were all like, a web in the sky. What is a web in the sky? Okay, so what is a web in the sky? I think they were talking about the World Wide Web. That's what I think they were talking about. There's all these signs that talk about when this time is now that there's a new world that needs to be born. You know, and maybe the words of Arundhati Roy, the great Indian writer, 
are those words that we want to talk about. You know, she talks about first, a new world is going to be born. Just if, you, if you're quiet, you can hear her breathing. But in this moment, she also talks about the pandemic. And what does she say? She says that uh, a pandemic is a portal between one world and the rest. Next, she says, in the history of the world, pandemics have always forced societies to change. This one is no different. It's a portal between one world and the next. And what does that mean? You know, we all have been living through these times. You know, we were all doing the old business as usual, right? Cruising around, making my plans here, there, gonna order my flowers from Colombia, my water from Fiji. <laughs> gonna do all my gigs, right? No, we all got sat down, didn't we? You know, a couple years off and on, sat down, closed down, we had to stay home. What'd we learn? You know, it's a time of change. Pandemics changed the world. It made us realize a number of things. It made us realize maybe that a globalized economy is predicated on a lot of things that are kind of precarious. Can we go with that as a description? You know, you can't get your parts, right? You're expecting your food. You need a lot of fossil fuels to do all that stuff and you need to be able to not be in a pandemic. You know, so during the pandemic, we might have learned that you can uh, breathe a little easier if you don't combust things and the ozone layer will clean up a little and we'll produce a little less carbon and maybe you'll be okay. We learn to relocalize. You know, a lot of people aren't even going back to work, are they? They're working remotely. We learn to use, you know, we, we learn to rethink some things and then some people didn't learn much at all. You know, that's the reality. But, you know, this is the beginning of a, of a time of epic changes. And I'm happy to be here, you know, in such an influential industry as you. An influential industry as the building industry. To help build something which is new, you know, to make something which is, which is new. Erin Dottie Roy talks about this pandemic and she talks about the pandemic as portal. You know, it is true. In the history of the world, society, it, as societies have been forced to change by pandemics. This one is no different. She says, what are you gonna carry through the portal? That's her question. She says, are you going to carry the avarice and the hatred, the data banks and the dirty rivers, the bad ideas? Are you going to walk through clean? And to me, that's this moment. This is moment that is prophesized by all of our ancestors that is this moment of let us make something new and beautiful. And so I'm happy to be here and visit a little bit about our work and our view of, you know, of some of the opportunity. So this is a water protector. I'm a water protector, too. And I'm from, you know, Anishinaabe woman from northern Minnesota, as is this one. Now, this one is not missing and murdered, as a lot of our indigenous women are, are fa you know, face that. But she's about, I don't know, 20 feet wide, 30 feet wide, and 40 feet tall in downtown Duluth, in the corner of 2nd Street and 2nd Avenue. You know, an uh, artist is named Votan. This is where I live, Gawawiegamug, in the White Earth Reservation. You know, I, I think about this because this is like where the wild things are, where I live. There's like geese and frogs and, and swans and herons and eagles and martins and bears and wolves and wild things, you know, where the wild things are. And that is, you know, really, you know, what need to be protected in this world. This is wild rice. A lot of you may not know that, but it grows in northern Minnesota. It's really the ecosystem of the north. It's not a farming and timber ecosystem. It's a wild rice ecosystem. 10,000 lakes. Minnesota's been busy trying to destroy the rice crop for as long as Minnesota's been around, from what I can figure. But we're still hanging in there. 
That's Lower Rice Lake there. That, that is wild rice that you're looking at. That's myself and Don Goodwin standing out there on a dock in the middle of a wild rice ecosystem. You know, what can I tell you about that? That's what biodiversity is, and that's what you got to protect if you want to keep on hanging out on this planet. You can't, you can't recreate biodiversity. You need it to be. You need to leave the wild things. The other thing is, is that I'll tell you that rice hulls are almost all silica. They don't burn. Interesting thing. Interesting opportunity for the green building industry that we would really love to talk to someone about. This is kind of a picture of indigenous people and biodiversity on a worldwide scale. The fact is, is that we're about 4% of the world's population, but about 75% of the biodiversity in the world. We're the people in the Amazon rainforest, we're the people in the Arctic, we're the people in northern Minnesota that protect biodiversity, because we keep our original instructions, you know, to try to not make a mess of things, not be greedy, understand the creator's law, understand that you gotta think, you know, it's, it's called, um, you know, in uh, American language or scientific language, it's called the precautionary principle. But what we would say is the uh, idea that in each deliberation, you need to consider the impact upon the seventh generation from now. Everything we do today, as is everything that has happened, I mean, we inherited a lot of really bad ideas, didn't we? Nuclear weapons, DDT, you know, all kind of crazy stuff, right? GMOs, all kind of crazy stuff, right? Those have intergenerational impacts. You know, America's so busy being fast and ahead that, you know, what we need to do is maybe just reflect a little more on what we do. Now I'm gonna talk about what sustainable building looks like. Okay, this is a plank house up in, in, uh, in uh, Haida Gwaii territory, I believe it is. Now, if you could, they built these houses in the old days, they would take a plank off a tree and leave the tree standing. Did y'all hear what I said? Take a plank off a tree and leave the tree standing. This is our birch bark houses. Take the bark off a tree and leave the tree standing. Now really, if you wanna get kind of purist about building green, that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Can you leave the forest intact in your building systems, right? Can you retain the biodiversity because you figure out how to live in a way which is a little simpler? Now this is, of course, my favorite kind of sustainable housing model. I don't have one of these yet. This is a, uh, a earth lodge. I think some of you have seen these. These are Mandan earth lodges, man. But these things, you know, if you want to hang out in North Dakota in the winter, you want one of these for sure. You know, these are, uh, this is what they look like. Now they're doing some new, I didn't get a picture of some of the new ones that they're adapting, but you know, what I'm talking about here is using natural building materials, one, and doing something that's gonna be like super resilient to all the extremes of weather. And that's really important because the weather extremes are getting more significant, right? And at the same time, what you know as well as I do is that the housing stock in the region that has some of the most extreme, well, we'll just go with that every place has extreme weather right now, right? But in my region and the Northern Plains, you have tremendous, tremendous impacts of wind. You have tremendous impacts of snow and blizzards. And most of the people that are living on my reservation, about 30% are living in trailers. And we all know that that's not sustainable in extreme weather, you know? So I'm interested in how we make something that is better. Now this is some art from our territory. I always like to show that because I was, as you gathered, I was an undergraduate at Harvard University. And if you wanted to study the art from Europe, you went to the fine arts program. If you wanted to study indigenous art, you went to anthropology, right? 
And so the fact is, is that an American education doesn't really teach you much about indigenous people, does it? Doesn't teach you about indigenous building, indigenous philosophy, indigenous science, indigenous, you know, how you survive. And America has no experience surviving, let's just be honest. You know, our predictions are you got another 50 years, not, not doing well, right? So if you wanna hang out, you gotta, we gotta like broaden our views. And I'm saying that in the most loving way because I feel like that the answers to the problems that are created today may not be found in the paradigm which created them. Should I say that one more time? The answers to the problems that we created today may not be found in the paradigm which created them. We need to all work together to make a better future. And everybody has some cool things, or most of people have some cool things to bring to the table. You know, but what I'm saying is, is like understand that there are people outside of this techno-fix paradigm that have solutions that are resilient. This art is, uh, um, you know, you can see these spirit lines which collect this, which document these, you know, that connect these people and these beings. This is called uh, in the same boat, all in one canoe. You know, and so my point is that we are all relatives and, and at this moment in time and at all moments in time, we are in the same canoe. What you do affects me and what I do impacts you, you know? And, uh, in, in the, in, and the solution, you know, my good friend, Philip Whiteman, Northern Cheyenne teacher and, and uh, spiritual leader, he said to me a couple years ago when I saw him, he pulled me aside, he said, Winona, he said, the next economy isn't about competition, it's about cooperation. It's about cooperation. If we're gonna survive, we all gotta work together. You know, so that's really this opportunity. Now, a little history lesson. This is, you know, Custer and Sitting Bull. The conflicts between indigenous people and industrial society are not new. <laughs> They're kind of historic, right? We try to keep our land, we try to keep our buffalo, America tries to take them and kill us. History, you know? Pretty much current till today, you know, but this is what we have left. And in that territory, mine is this big, is the box up in northern Minnesota. I'm one of the, the square box. Oh, this plant is all moving. I wonder if that's a meanie. But um, that's what we have left. And on that, we have not only a huge amount of the energy resources and the cobalt and everything needed for the new green mining, right? And all the historic oil, gas, and uranium from the last energy economy, but we also have tremendous agricultural lands. And a lot of those folks are growing hemp and are interested in growing hemp. And that's why I'm showing you a little bit of this map. My organizing region is kind of the Northern Plains Territory, which I'm gonna just let you figure that one out there, but yeah. Okay, so in this present world that we are in, however, we don't get to do a lot of those things. We spend most of our time defending our lives. This is a picture of deforestation in Brazil. It could be anywhere. But the building industry is driving deforestation. That's the reality. And a lot of those, like I was up in Duluth and they have like this new pier at Canal Park which is made out of like Brazilian rainforest wood. I was like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why does the green egg have to have charcoal from the Brazilian rainforest? What is it? You know, can we just leave those folks alone? You know, can we just quit? But the building industry drives a lot of this deforestation. These are the people that are trying to stop them from, from killing us, you know, and killing our forests, right? These are Kayapo people. They're still down there. They're still down there hanging out, trying to protect what remains of their forests from loggers, right? 
and then we're getting killed. You know, this is not about just some theory. This is about the fact that 1,700, you know, activists or activists, people like me, standing up for the forest, got killed over the last decade. And the leading countries for the killing are in, in the Americas. You know, that's the building industry. That's the mining industry. That's the agri agricultural industries that are killing these folks, you know, killing a lot of these people. You know, I knew a lot of these people. I have relatives that were killed. So my point is, is that this isn't just, this is about life and death. That's my point. My point is that this is about life and death, not just for indigenous people, you know, but for all of us, right? And if we're gonna survive, we all gotta work together and y'all got the opportunity to transform things. Now here's a couple pictures of my recent history. This is Standing Rock, 2016. Some of you remember the battle over the Dakota Access Pipeline and whether or not Energy Transfer Partners should be able to throw a pipeline over, over the, the, you know, right north of this community, right? Now, just to be clear on infrastructure, these guys have, like, none, pretty much. They don't have adequate health facilities. They don't have adequate housing facilities. They don't have adequate water infrastructure facilities. But they got a big-ass pipeline now, right? And so this is kind of the inequities that continue to be perpetuated by, by this country. And in these, you know, so you could just see here, the initial proposed route was, oh, that's right, just north of Bismarck, right? The 95% white city. So who gets the pipeline in the end? We do, right? You know, because all of this is this system that continues to extract from indigenous people. This is my last year. I spent eight years fighting a pipeline in northern Minnesota called Enbridge Line 3. You know, totally baffles me totally baffles me why a Canadian multinational should hold the Great Lakes hostage. You know, but a lot of it has to do with oil addiction or perceptions of access and endless access to energy and oil that are needed. You know, just to be honest, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I spent my whole life in the fossil fuel industry. I'm with you, you know, I got this, right? The problem is, is, that, is that, you know, the choices that are made, whether it is the inefficiency in the building industry or the in inefficiency in city planning and in transportation, or just in complete greed, have put us in a situation where we violate people's human rights just to ensure that we can have oil in our gas tank. And all this stuff from the Canadian tar sands, dirtiest oil in the world, isn't even going into the United States. Most of it's going back to Canada. A lot of us for export markets. That's my arrest, one of three. You know, I have charges in three counties in Minnesota for protecting my water. So I'm telling you this story because I really want a way out of this. Does that make sense? I don't want to spend the rest of my life. I was like, I was like talking to my guy. I was like, whew, looks like I'm not getting arrested this week. You know, last year I spent my time, you know, getting arrested with thousands of people in Minnesota trying to say our water is worth more than your oil, right? And what if we could create a way out of this? That's what I want. I want a graceful transition from the fossil fuels economy into a post-fossil fuels economy, you know? And you, this industry, the building industry, is essential to driving that transition. Now, this is kind of the end of the bad pictures, but you don't need this, you know, I mean, we just lived through a storm last night, right? We lived through the storm. I was like in a restaurant trying to figure out, I mean, I never come to the cities. It's kind of a joke, because they're like, you went to the cities? I was like, yeah, yeah, and then I got in a storm and I got stuck in, you know. But you know, my point is, is that because of the choices made collectively, you know, whether it is the fact that concrete, if it was a country, right, after China and the United States would be the third largest source of CO2 emissions in the world, that'd be concrete. You know, that's y'all, right? Or whether it's, you know, all of the, you know, 
fossil fuel wars and the military, all of this stuff is making a mess. And the fact is, is that all we're going to have is more and more chaos in our climate. So we need to figure out how to survive. That's what our ancestors said. You know, my father, he passed away about 20 years ago, but he told me one time, he said, Winona, one day there's going to be no food in the store. I was like, what? You know, that's how, you know, I, I didn't think. But didn't we just see that? We just saw that during the pandemic. There's no food in the store. So it's really time to relocalize and to build and make sense. So this is my first part of the talk is on, on hemp, right? And I know a lot of you are familiar with hemp, but I'm a hemp farmer, right? I've been har farming hemp. I have a state of Minnesota permit and a federal permit. This is my seventh year farming. I can't grow anything with THC in it. I'm not actually interested in growing anything with THC. You know, could go get that from somebody else if you want that stuff, right? What I'm interested in is fiber hemp. And I'm interested in that because I believe and we know that this is the new green revolution. That's what we call it, the new green revolution. And we do that for a number of reasons because as you know, hemp has, you know, the way I heard it put best once was we had a choice at a certain point in time between a hydrocarbon economy and a carbohydrate economy. We had a choice, and we took the wrong choice. In the 1920s, the United States was poised to make paper out of hemp, bioplastics or whatever out of hemp, hemp building. The word canvas comes from cannabis, right? You know what I'm saying? We had a materials economy which could be made out of something that you could grow that sequesters carbon. Wait, did we all get this right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like we could have had that economy, but instead we got this, you know, bunk fossil fuels economy that we're all just trying to survive right now, right? But it's a set of choices that were made that were policy choices. This is Alex Whiteplume. He's the, the really the father of the indigenous hemp movement. Arrested, charged initially with, uh, you know, under the, by the DEA in the 1990s for growing hemp. He still grows hemp, and this is his hemp field around his house. The DEA seized his crop, burned it, took it away, but they shook all the plants on their way out. <laughs> and so he has, like, this entire yard full of hemp, right? And, I, you know, but he couldn't touch it because it was, like, all there, but I thought it was funny as heck. These are some of our hemp farmers, right? This is uh, one's from Cheyenne River. Um, these ladies on the right, they're from Cheyenne River. I said, send me a picture about your hemp farming, and they sent me that. They were, like, so happy. Right, and then Sherilyn Spears from Red Lake. You know, that woman's gonna put in another 100. We're, we're small, we're small for a number of reasons. One is, you know, I, one is because the industry is being reborn. That's the truth. It's being reborn because it was repressed for 70 years, right? It is being reborn and we are learning, relearning how to grow it. And then we're learning the whole value-added processing. And everybody in here knows that hemp has been kind of poo-pooed way over there for all these years, right? And in addition to that, with the renaissance of, you know, cannabis, it's been really mostly interested in, in, in something you could smoke, not something you could grow. This is my family, and this is our hemp crop, right? You can see the fiber hemp, what it looks like. Now, I'm interested in textiles. And so that's what I've been working on. But textiles, of course, brought me to building materials. Because this is, uh, you know, so in northern Minnesota, we're cold, and uh, we don't have a very long summer, but we have a heck of a lot of daylight in the summer. So you can grow a 12-foot-high hemp plant, no irrigation, no fertilizer. I mean, we fertilize the land. You know, I'm, I'm big on the manure. I got horses, 
you know, so a cyclical system, y'all follow me kind of on my strategy here, a cyclical system, and then this crop will grow, you know, and it doesn't need a lot of extra stuff, that sounds kind of crazy, but you know what I mean, you know, not like cotton, which, you know, will take 24% uh, of the world's pesticides and 4% of the world's agriculture, right? This stuff doesn't need that. You just grow it organic, which is what you guys have to help drive as an organic fiber hemp industry. Not a hemp industry down in Texas where they grow it, and then they defoliate it, and then they cut it. That's not what we need. We need an organic hemp fiber industry, right? So this stuff grows that tall. It looks like bamboo. You can see my son in the middle. He's decorticated it. And, uh, you know, in, in this, uh, when it grows really fat, tall like that, then, it's, then it sucks down a bunch of carbon. That's basically how it works. And that is part of the magic of the plant. And it's also about as tall as it is, it has a very substantial root structure. And so it's very significant for its potential to bioremediate, which is one of the, cre the you know, critical things that we need to do. You know, you could build a whole new, new deal, new green deal economy on bioremediation, like cleaning up the messes that industrial society made, right? And making, you know, this new efficient economy. This is some of our hemp on the right. That's a Navajo rug made with our hemp. Uh, that was what my initial interest is. And that is hemp fiber that is spun into hemp insulation by these guys called Hempitecture. We used a bunch of that, super sweet to use, replaces uh, fiberglass, you know, put it up by your face. It's like 95% hemp, very cool stuff, right? Like it, super expensive. I'd like to do that, but I think I'm gonna stick to textiles and then, uh, but you know, here's a little bit more about hemp building materials. And I think that you are generally familiar with this, you know, and I am f I'm fully aware that the United States building industry, like all backwards crazy stuff that they got, you know, hempcrete, although it's been used for thousands of years and they're building like eight story buildings in Paris with hempcrete, you know, uh, not, not yet in the United States because of the lobby of the fossil fuels industry, the lobbies of the logging industry, the lobbies of the evil, greedy industries. I'm just gonna call it, you know? But these guys, you know, so you can, what, our, what we're working on right now is basically stick framing with hemp. We did some hemp insulation, but I'm really interested in these new guys. I didn't have a picture of them. They like have this spray gun and they spray the insulation in. You know what I'm talking about? It's like super cool though, you know? And that, you know, kind of stuff adds both structure and it adds, you know, th the hemp insulation has an R28 value at eight inches, right? So it has a good uh, insulation value, which is what we need, you know? And then these hempcrete. The thing about hempcrete is that not only does it sequester carbon inside the hempcrete, right? But also it is, builds a very, you know, it doesn't use concrete, you're using lime, but it also can build a very, uh, you know, climate resilient house. You know, one of the, I got a lot of things that irritate me about America, but one of the things is the air conditioning, like helpful in here. But my point is the amount of energy we use because of the inefficiency of our buildings is disgraceful, right? You know, and all of us know that what's happened is that Americans go from their air conditioned car to their air conditioned, you know, house, and they have no reality, that they don't live in reality anymore. You know, they're looking at their phone talking about how free they are, and I'm like, yeah, that looks really free to me. You know, but my point is, is that is that we need to bring people back uh, to <laughs> the world. <laughs> you know, we need to build housing that, and and build, uh, you know, uh, build so that we can live in places that are full of life. You know, that reaffirm our connections. 
uh, to the natural world. And here's, you know, a little bit about, I'm just, you know, saying that hempcrete itself sequesters carbon. Hempcrete itself, it can be used structurally and can be used in, in with stick frame building. And if and when, you know, it is, as I see the green building industry moving, you know, I went and bought some hemp wood. Have you guys seen that stuff yet? I just wish I had a picture of it. But they basically, what they do is they take those stalks just like mine, right? You saw those pictures? And then they tip them over, they take the leaves off, and then they squish them with a bunch of, uh, and with like soybean paste and bake it. And they're making structural wood, like beams out of it, and flooring. Eight bucks a, a square foot flooring. My, my guys are like, uh, maybe we shouldn't cut that. <laughs> but, you know, it's obviously a luxury industry. And it needs to be a luxury industry, but we need to be able to have equity in the industry. So it's accessible to, for instance, you know, we, we intend to produce for that industry, but we want to own the industry. You know, I'm, I don't want to be uh, on the menu anymore, right? I'm ready to be at the table. And this new green economy and, then, and the new green revolution, this is a French high rise out of hemp. <laughs> you know, this, uh, what we refer to as the new green revolution, has the opportunity to transform an economy and build the building industries are essential to that work, right? And why I'm saying that is that hemp doesn't exist in the present economy. It's existing now like marijuana is coming in. And everybody could see what a very, very valuable, you know, everybody's happy <laughs> with that, right? But the real revolution is when you transform the materials economy with hemp. That's the real revolution because in that we're going to sequester carbon, right? We're going to build houses and, and everybody here is looking out there and like, I was just in California a few weeks ago. I was in Sonoma County and I was like, are you guys going to like chop up any of your marijuana and make hempcrete out of it? I mean, you know what I'm saying is they're all into marijuana. But I was like, why don't you rebuild with something that's fire resistant? <laughs> what do you do in California? Why don't you build with local materials instead of repeating the same mistake over and over and over? Let's use this opportunity of complete catastrophe to make things that are better, right? You know, and that's, you know, that's the, the opportunity of the new green revolution, of bringing hemp into the materials and building economy. This is hemp rebar. I mean, this is a graphic of hemp rebar. You know, and why are we talking about that? Because we all just saw that building collapse in Florida, right? Rebar corrodes. So what if you started, you know, went back to the carbohydrate economy and started integrating it into housing, integrating it into our building materials? You know, that is what I see. You know, in my community, we've, we've, we've built a, uh, you know, a straw bale greenhouse, or not, I mean, a hempcrete greenhouse, and now we want to build two houses for elders on the community. And, you know, so we're working on that. And if, if any of you guys want to help us on that, that'd be great. But, you know, the point is, is that someone needs to start building far more of this and making this available to all kinds of folks. That's like the graphic of how you make the hempcrete or the hemp rebar. And this is a little bit about the sequestration of carbon you know, that is the potential of hemp. And why I'm really on this is because obviously I am super interested in the idea of sequestering carbon in every industry. And the building industry is a huge industry that has the potential to help drive this economy of sequestering carbon with hemp and putting that, putting that in, you know, embedding that into the houses. 
That's what we really need to do to help transform this equation that we're at. This is my little hemp farm. This is where I lived for the past two years during the pandemic. All my grandchildren and all their friends moved in with me because I had horses. And so I basically uh, horse-drawn agriculture and hemp. That's us. This year we're going to have about 70 acres of hemp in, but you know I'm not interested in having thousands of acres of hemp ourselves as a community. You need about a thousand acres of hemp to have a hemp wood mill. Like that, that building material I described to you, it's like a thousand acres is what they said for one mill. And a lot of their strategy, which is the right strategy, is to relocalize. Why? Because the pandemic should have smacked us up and said, get your stuff local, right? And with hemp, you could do that. You could, you could you know, regionally have hemp production, which is what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in having the largest hemp facility in North America. I'm interested in having a replicable size, medium-scaled industrial facility that we could build five of them in the Northern Plains. That's what I'm interested in. And provide, you know, within 200 to 500 miles, provide a lot of materials, you know, for a housing industry and for a building industry. That's where the revolution is, is in transforming not only the materials of the building economy, but also how it is organized. That's really the essential strategy. And here's us, Winona's hemp, and some of my happy hemp crop. This is some of my 60-year-old housing project. <laughs> this is how my community lives, just to say, what do you do if you live in a HUD housing project built under the Johnson administration? And this is the housing stock my tribe has. Well, you paint them. You know, it makes you feel better. But my point is, is that the, you know, that's pretty nice, huh? It's my village at Pine Point. I'm going after the look that they have in, what's it called, the mission? You know I'm talking about in California where they have all those murals on the, in the mission? I'm trying to get like ecotourism and, you know, we want to build a hemp house in this village too. Second thing that we do in my village, so, you know, I told you like, I live on the White Earth Reservation and basically the story I'm telling you is also the story of people who, like nobody really cares about us. Is that fair to say? Like, we don't have political power, we don't have a lot of money. You know, they've basically been trying to kill us for a couple hundred years, right? So we looked out there and we said, well, it doesn't look like anybody's solving these problems for us, so let's see what we can do, right? So we created this thing called Eighth Fire Solar, which is a part of our prophecy. The time of the seventh fire, you make a choice between two paths, one well-worn and scorched and one green. If you take the green path, you get to light the eighth fire. That's our gig. I want to make a future that's livable. So this is us making these solar thermal panels. Why am I showing you this? Because everybody's into solar these days, but nobody is interested in, it, it, there's just not enough interest in how you're gonna heat homes. In Northern Minnesota, one of the largest energy uses is heating, right? So the basic thing you should do is wood heat, quite honest, but in addition to wood heat, you could also combine it with solar thermal. And that stuff, this is a solar thermal panel. We make these in my community. We make these things. They're not sexy or cute. I mean, I think they're kind of cute. But an eight by four panel, you guys are smart. You can see that basically you put it on the south facing wall. It gets hot, <laughs> as my son described. It gets hot, you be warm, pretty much. You know, it gets hot. As soon as it gets to about 90 degrees, a, a thermostat triggers the blower fan and it blows hot air into your house. Could save about 20% of your heating bill in your house. You know, here's a couple of our guys building, right? Build these in the community. So what if you could put those on south-facing walls of houses in cold areas, right? And save 20% of their heating bill. 
Now that's something that like in the, in the deepest of winter, this time the power went out, but their solar thermal kept going in this little village. This is Nat Lake. For those of you who know where that is, that's like right up by the Canadian border. And they were like, yay, we're still warm. <laughs> so she sent me that picture. I was like, that, that, that's so funny, you know. All right, this is very cool solar. I just have to show this, right? This is the Red Lake Nation Solar Project. That's what the future looks like. Put solar on your rooftops, put solar on your brownfields, right? But that's just, that, that's gotta, that does have to like count as one of the coolest looking solar projects you ever saw, right? And that's built by this cool guy. His name is Bob Blake. He lives right here in the cities. Bob Blake, solar bear. That's what they call him. You know, but the local utility rural co-ops, they're so racist, so racist. So old boy cronyism. Let me just be honest. They were like, Red Lake said, we're going to build this. You want to help us work with this? They said, nope, you can't do that. Red Lake said, just watch. They built it. Yeah, but the point is, is why should Indian people have to fight to do the right thing? You know, what we need is allies like y'all working with us to overcome the backwards racism of the deep north. That's where I live, the deep north, and help build the next economy, you know? Now, what's that mean? That doesn't mean just for here, but look. What is this picture? You're like, why the heck she have that picture? That's wind turbines, right? Where are they coming from? Oh, that's coming into the port of Duluth. Why are they coming into the port of Duluth? Because that's the furthest inland port and because like 90% of our wind turbines come from Europe or China. What is my point in this? My point is that if you want to actually build a resilient economy, you need to relocalize it. You need to build your stuff here. You need to figure out how to get stuff here. You need to get your stuff as close as possible to here, right? Like our little solar thermal panels, all this stuff is made in Minnesota, Wisconsin, except for one darn thing, and that's made in Germany. And I'm like, I'm gonna figure out how to make that here, right? But you see what I'm saying is that if we all wanna hang out for a while, we gotta relearn how to live right, you know, and, and with an excellent quality of life, but predicated on, on uh, you know, relocalizing. And what am I also pointing out is that, you know, as we move into the next economy, the globalized economy, I'm, I'm just really not a fan of it. I'm not. You know, I, I mean, I had some Thai food last night. That was awesome. You know, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this, this, this economy that forces you to put so much fossil fuels into every step of your life. Because that's what it does. And the fact is, is that, you know, people that live in, in, in Minnesota and elsewhere, we just buy a lot of stuff from everywhere else, seems like, right? And it's now, if you really want to build a resilient economy, we're going to need to relocalize. We're going to need to get it here. And um, this is uh, some art by Christy Belcourt. I thought you might like it, but it's called New Beginnings, right? <sighs> That's just to say, look, tough sledding out there. I know. You know, I just told you I've been getting arrested all last year, right? But somebody's got to say, this is wrong, and then somebody's got to make what's right. That's us. That's y'all. You know, join with us, because if the building industry moves into the next economy and really starts relocalizing, working in the high-quality, ethically sourced, oh, my God, you know, economy, hemp, solar, you know, whatever it is, you know, but I'm just saying be local, be, be good, and this is the time, this is the time when, when a new, uh, new, new things are reborn. It's spring. It's, it's spring. I know that you're all familiar with that. But my point is, is that in all of our teachings, 
You know, this is the time of rebirth. This is actually the beginning of the Ojibwe New Year. Happy New Year. We don't, we don't begin January 1. That's the Gregorian folks, right? We're like the new year begins when Mother Earth wakes up after maple syruping. And you're done making maple sugar. That's the beginning of the new year when the frogs sing. That's when we left. You know, that's when we left. And that's why you need biodiversity, because you need to know what your instructions are. And the frogs tell you when you leave the sugar bush. And they tell you that spring is coming. I think of the Zapatista proverb, they buried us. They forgot that we were seeds. They forgot that we were seeds. So be the seeds. You know, be the seeds of the new thoughts, the new ideas. You know, remember who we are. This, you know, the, the opportunity we have now of rebuilding, you know, rebuilding our, uh, our, our ways of life in the face of catastrophe which surrounds us, like no better moment to take a breath and see the, 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 the new good path is here. And in that, you know, we can make something that is, that is far more beautiful and far more resilient. Um, I want to thank you very much for your time. Miigwech.